welcome to the first episode of Screenworthy, the podcast about everything that is and should be on screen. Brought to you by the Mind Refinery. I am your host, Kyle Bodanis. This week we're talking about The Five Bloods, the latest joint from the man himself, Spike Lee. If you're not already subscribing to the Mind Refinery podcast channel or following us on YouTube or social media, we highly recommend it. Don't forget to give us a good rating while you're at it. Now, here's the show. Hey guys, here with me to discuss Spike Lee's latest joint is the incomparable Coburn Blair. How's it going? And making his first appearance on the pod, talented filmmaker and producer, Neil Awusu. Hey. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. So, Spike Lee, he does another war film. Uh, I think this one is totally very different from his previous, which uh, mm-hmm. we will get into. What were our initial reactions to this film? Um, Cobra, you want to go or what's up? Uh, all right, all right, you lead off. Okay, okay, okay. Well, I mean, I was apprehensive at first a little bit. Um, I just, I know, you know, Spike Lee, even though I love him and I will like, you know, probably tattoo him on my shoulder if I could, um, just because I'm, I'm a pretty diehard fan of his work. I, there is still sometimes a bit of touch and go with his work. So I was apprehensive, but when I saw it, I was pretty, pretty blown away, pretty blown away, like in terms of um, the overall pacing of the film, the, the, what the back and forth with um, the, the character stories in term from a time point of view, um, how it looks uh, and yeah, just overall, like the impression that it left. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Like, I think coming off of uh, Black Klansman, which I I loved, and I thought it was a uh, quite the return to form from Spike Lee, like just at least compared to uh, Shy Rap, I think it was 2014 or something like that. Mm. Um, so I think he was kind of getting up back on track, and I knew like obviously the cast. I was really excited for Jonathan Majors. I just seen uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah, uh, such a great. This film. is a great film. That's the only one I've seen of him, unfortunately. Yeah, so I saw that and uh, White Boy Rick too. So kind of coming off those things and I was really excited for his performance. So I think it lived up to that. Initially, I thought like maybe it's a little bit long. Like I think there were certain points in the movie that could have been maybe shorter. Yeah. Yeah. But initially, I I really liked the movie. Yeah, I thought definitely that the length was one of the problematic things with it. But overall, I mean, what I... I mean, anytime you're with Spike Lee, and I mean this in the best way possible, he's like cinema and PBS combined. And like, (laughs) it gives me like, but it's like, I'm a, like, I'm a, like, I'll go to bat for public television any day. And it's like, there's always like teachable moments in it. And I, I, I really, really, really enjoyed just how he was able to kind of get into, you know, the black experience in Vietnam and, and, and do it in a way that was interesting, playing with the different aspect ratios and, you know, really putting together a cast that was able to kind of live up to the, to the work. And also like, also not be completely tone deaf for the Vietnamese, um, the Vietnamese ideas associated. Yeah. I I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I I love that. It was a balanced sort of perspective. Yeah, and when he shows, and I forget her, uh, the I forget the uh, the name, but the um, the Vietnamese, the person, the Vietnamese woman on the radio, it's um, uh, Hanoi. Uh, yeah, Hanoi Han- Helen, is it? I think it's Hannah. Yeah. Hannah, it's Hanoi Hannah. Hannah. Uh, 
I like how because of that I mean it was obviously taken. That's that is the v, the v, North Viet the Viet Cong understood what like there was more the black soldiers in the in Vietnam War had more you know kind of in relation to what the Vietnamese were experiencing right and I think that the Vietnamese intelligence was smart enough to understand that um, yeah. that you know that. You know, black soldiers weren't weren't, and black people in America, especially at that, especially at that time, were like you know they were fighting for a country that them didn't love them back. And I, mm-hmm. it's 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 very, you know, you really see the scope of the enemy's knowledge of them when with that right and how they're speaking directly to him, to them. Yeah. And um, I I really thought that was a, a kind of a really cool nuance that Spike Lee dropped in. But at the same time, never damned what they were do- they're doing at the same time. It's like this weird, like, they were giving their lives to their country as, you know, as they had said, the black people had always done, you know, since, you know, the Revolutionary War. And then they were just kind of contextualizing this versus, you know, what the civil rights situation was in the United States. And I thought that was, it was just very, very well done. And I, as I said with the with the PBS thing, it's like, I get a warm feeling every time I watch a Spike Lee movie. Like even if it gets rough, but it's a, like a it's a it's it's in it just is in my wheelhouse. I feel like I'm always watching something important, with some exceptions, uh, to because he obviously has had you know missteps and such. But mm-hmm. um, I think this is honestly one of his best movies, and I thought he did fantastic with it. I think the use of arch- archival footage to set the tone and to con- contextualize everything, like just the kind of nonstop onslaught uh, to set up the time period, the era. Uh, I thought helping. Um, Muhammad Ali was important there because he was a very prominent outspoken critic like Kwame Torre and uh, everyone else he had there to set it up. And and I think also like having Hanoi Hanna, who, you know, was a real person at the time, also calls back to his use of uh, uh, Axis Sally in um, in Miracle at St. Anna, who was a German propaganda of the same thing. And the use of propaganda by like, you know, the U.S.'s enemies was really effective because what they were saying was essentially true like it wasn't really you know conflicting propaganda they were playing music that was you know from the time period and like and it spoke directly to the soldiers in a way that like the u.s couldn't really claim to do because they didn't care about the soldiers as much as you know like they were kind of cannon fodder at that point they were being drafted by an imperialist like an imperialist they were being drafted by an imperialist power it's really interesting how we put it together i really like that yeah, I think, I mean, the one thing I, I, I enjoyed, um, apart from the historical context, is Spike Lee's films, his soundtracks, Terrence Blanchard, like, I don't, I think he has, I think he uses them at least 90% of, of, of the films that he makes, but it has a very distinct Spike Lee sound. Like, I was watching, um, not like, When the Levees Broke just recently, um, and I go back to that film like maybe once a year just because of how well it's done it's a documentary but um still there is um just that connection that you feel it there's there is almost a like a, a reflection because of the score like you're watching this film you're watching this action film but because of like the the slow sort of deep jazz um, accents you're reflecting even in a high-paced action film Oh, no, I, I was going to say, yeah, like, the, I think his use of, like, Marvin Gaye and, like, if you look at the soundtrack to this movie, like, it has a lot of the same songs that, like, for me, at least, 
my favorite movie Spike Lee when I was a kid was Crooklyn and like kind of the connections of having Delroy Lindo and both and then yeah. the soundtrack <laughs> yeah. you know it matches up there's like the use of like the Chamber Brothers time's gonna come or like but the way they use Marvin in this film I think was like something of its own like the stripped down vocals and right. you know, matching the scenes I thought was just so powerful and like added a whole like different layer to the movie the use of the mar the use of uh, work from what's going on was awesome. Like when they did Inner City Blues, like when they used Inner like that, like first of all that record, if there was an anti-war record that really encapsulated, the, you know, the want for peace and the you know the kind of contradiction from having you know black people go out and fight for a country that doesn't you know it doesn't care about them back. I mean that I mean that was the Marvin Gaye sunk into with that record, and I thought that that was a great compliment to what was going on. It was great use for the soundtrack and also like the acapella um, when they had that acapella part where they were just using the lyrics. Um, it was, it was just really good. I, I think the way he does soundtracks are really good. You know, it's really good. I, I, I don't think he uses score in a manipulative way either, which is super important because mm -hmm. it's like, it's got to with the way he uses it, it's like it creeps up on you where you start feeling these emotions bubbling up inside of you, but your brain isn't connected to them. And then you just realize it's like, wow, that's being put together with really well done horns. You know what I mean? And, and as I said, those jazz accents, you know, in the music. Yeah. It's, I think it's like everything, even with Miracle St. Anna, like, like I, I believe Ter uh, Terrence Blanchard, was the composer on that as well yeah but there's such a such a like a juxtaposition of like jazz and like oh okay this is a war film and it's 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 almost it confuses you at first but i mean if you're used to spike lee it, it, you know like there's a deep jazz cut um in it but it, it was nice to see even in the vietnam context well that's an interesting point because you know it's there's He's using music that is very, I mean, it's it's very quintessential film score rooted in classicism, but then, and it almost, especially used in a war film, that kind of music almost feels patriotic. But mm -hmm. when he's adding those jazz feelings, he's adding those minor tones and notes in there. So it's like there's a little bit of dissonance in it. So, and I think that he's able to do that really effectively in blend styles, but also yeah. stay rooted well you know, like listening to his, listening to his, uh, you know, listening to his soundtracks and stuff. Like, it, I mean, it's like listening to, you know, the history of black music in the 20th century, which is the history of popular music in the 20th century. So like, I, I mean, that's, it's, there's another one of those things is that's why, you know, I say it's like PBS. Cause it's like, it's a, it's a mood and a feel I get when I'm watching something important and he bolsters that and he just pulls at those heartstrings enough. So as I said, you don't notice them, but it like really helps combined with the performances it's all the elements working together and i thought that was one thing that was really good with this film because like with the aspect ratios with the music with the soundtrack with the performances with the historical context that was added to the film it was really kind of bringing everything together in a very succinct way um so i think that was the one of the biggest things for it but over like what was our favorite moments from this flick i think for me uh like i love the change in aspect ratio when they go to the past. Um, I also like that he didn't use de-aging. I, I, I know there's some kind of controversy about him talking about like yeah. maybe not having the budget for it, but I think it works well to kind of 
show how these characters are trapped in their own memories and how they're experiencing time and, you know, PTSD and all these kind of other factors uh, that have been kind of chained in the moment. So I think when you see, like, how Storm and Norman is killed by um, uh, Delroy Lindo's character, Paul, I thought that was really powerful because it speaks to, like, how haunted uh, Paul is throughout the film and how much he's kind of stuck in this moment and how kind of everything he, he does up until this point is because of that moment in the past and he's kind of living with that. I think for me, like the the aspect ratio for sure is 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 something that I think worked really, really well. I I, th- I think at first it may have like I may have noticed it. I, I don't know if it would have explicitly taken me out of the film, but I I, I noticed it, but then it became a, a quick trigger for you to know Oh, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a flashback. This is this is a sequence, and and it was it was it was nice. To ha- and I know, like in other films, you know, it's done by different ways. Whether it's you know slowing down, slowing down of the frame rate, color, etc. But I think just that quick like crop was like a quick indication of okay, this is this is a flashback sequence. Um, and then on the point of the de aging, I. Like Coburn, I know I heard of the the same um, controversy around that as well. For me, I I don't know. I I sit between not de aging, but would it have made sense to get a younger cast for those scenes? Because I understand why he didn't. But there are not all not all the sequences, the flashback sequences. But there are certain sequences where I'm like, oh, y'all old. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I'm like, uh, but I, I, I also understand to keep your connection with the character consistently throughout the film, it made sense to to use those characters. So I'm not to say that I'm in the same mind space as the talented Spike Lee, but I can see maybe him he having sort of a back and forth in terms of what makes the most sense. I think the fear is because what you just said, like with uh how they look old, especially it's when they're doing action stuff. Yeah. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, when they're firing a gun, like, I'm of two minds of it. Like, I went to the theater and saw um, The Irishman, and the scene where okay. Robert De Niro is beating that guy in the wide shot is one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> like because the faces don't match the actor's movements. No. Right? So it's like, you're looking no. at a guy who's been de-aged to look like he's 20, like 30, 25 or 30, but then he's moving around like an old man who's got, obviously, a hip problem. So it's like, yeah. how do you, so like, that's the problem for me with the de-aging is that like, I don't think the technology is there or at least. Oh, like, I, I completely agree with the de like yeah. non-de-aging. Like, I think it, I think we would have ran into that same, yeah. that same sort of, uh, like it's, it's the uncanny valley, right? Yeah, 100%. Of, it's like, wait, this is not right. <laughs> like it's close, but it's not right. And sometimes things that are closer to being right are almost worse because like, I I think with this is it added a surreal element to it as if it was almost like it added a very dreamy like idea to it because it's like they're young. And then Chadwick Boseman who in his limited time is fantastic. The guy is fantastic, is super talented. Um, in his limited time on screen, it's like, it's very like these old guys with their buddy who died. And uh, it's kind of funny because he never aged, 
So it kind of shows that because he died. And then it just shows these old guys who, like Coburn said, with the whole, you know, um, they have been living haunted by it. Um, I mean, my favorite time, well, when friggin' Lester Freeman himself walked on screen, Clark Peters, uh, <laughs> I was very happy. Because this guy's following the money again. This guy's following the money in the wire. Now yeah. he's following the money in the jungle. I love it. Um, yeah. He's he's fucking so good. And then Isaiah Whitlock, shit himself. Yeah, we got a sheet scene, shit. which I was like, <laughs> I feel like you can't put him in a movie. They so like elongated it, and it was so perfect. <laughs> like all everyone watching it knew what it was, yeah. and it was just a great nod to the character. <laughs> Yeah, and he was, I mean, Jonathan, like, I really thought that the, especially, you know, the four friends um, and Jonathan Majors coming in was, like, really, 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 really good. I thought they had great chemistry. I thought it was fun at times, but it's also real. It showed that they're, it showed that they all have the same problem, essentially, but went different ways like one guy squandering his fortune one guy mm -hmm. like losing himself uh you know delroy lindo's character clark peters is like outside addiction isaiah whitlock you know like he's the only one who seemed kind of somewhat together but like they all like this is a, this is the thing it's trauma and i i'm glad that they acknowledged some self-actualization about it. it like among the characters that they understood they had trauma because it kind of would have right. been like if you add characters at this time with all we know now about PTSD, kind of just not acknowledging it, you know what I mean? Um, and then Delroy Lindo, every time he was on screen, especially when he broke away from them and, you know, he started to like almost break the fourth wall. Oh my god! Um, oh yeah, we gotta we gotta have a conversation about the monologue. Like, yeah, yeah. He was just <laughs> chewing up scenery all like anytime he's on screen. He was great, man. Every moment was economic. As economic as a monologue can be, we'll put it that way. Yeah, it was it was really good. So, like, let's let's look a little bit about performances. I guess Delroy Lindo is a fucking great place to start. Um, in my opinion, I can't see him not getting nominated for at least I, a like, fucking Golden Globe. I I think he's a really underutilized actor. Like, even like if you look him up on IMDb, like he, I don't think the quality of acting that he's kind of given over the years doesn't really match his status like i don't think he's used that often by act directors yeah like i i it's so funny like he's a character actor right like and i think there's always that weird thing of like the character actor transitioning to the to to a legitimate not that's that's poor use of words to like a a, a lead a, a focused um, everyone putting the energy behind and I think he's a character from his acting chops from when I was young because that's what I want to say like I grew up with Delroy like I in every in films um, where he was like playing like a badass gangster, Malcolm X, like him playing a father figure in Romeo Must Die, like like a range of different um, characters, like you know him, and it's it's for me it's 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 great to see him in a role like this because I honestly feel like this is his movie, like this is his like everyone else was great in it, in it, but this is this feels like his vehicle, and I would be shocked if um he doesn't get the accolades that like he's deserving of i feel like spike lee is the only one who utilizes him properly 
to be honest with you. Um, because, yeah. and you see, here's the thing with Delroy Lindo. He's like a utility infielder. You could pop him anywhere and he's going to yeah. be good, right? Like he's good. Like this guy, this guy's like conservatory theater education too. So like he's been, you know, he's, he has more than the chops and to do this. And you know, like, it's funny because I completely forgot about the Romeo Must Die thing, but uh, yeah. it's like, I completely I watched, forgot. I watched the core the other night and I was like, oh, I forgot he was in the core. Like, oh, he's yeah, like, he's he was in... in the core. Oh, true, true, true. That fucking Aaron Eckhart movie? Is that <laughs> yeah. what it is? Yeah. I think so. Where it's like space like, in the middle of the fucking earth? He's like, I feel like his playbook is out of Samuel Jackson's playbook, where, like, he's, like, used in so many different plays, like, he has so many different roles. I feel like Samuel Jackson, I think last year or two years ago, was like the highest paid just because of the amount of films he was. Something something around that metric. And it's just like he is consistently working, but he doesn't have the acclaim like a Samuel L. Jackson does. Yeah, yeah I would say. Yeah, I, I've, I think the thing is that Samuel L. Jackson's been in huge blockbusters is right. the big thing. And also like films like snakes on a plane where it, it gains its own level of note and order, uh, notoriety yeah. you know what i mean yeah. so he's a little bit like there's a um i'm not a samuel jackson's a talented actor but there is still a level of kind of novelty with his performances right mm. where he has tropes that he kind of falls into uh, despite being a fucking super talented actor but like delroy Lin lindo i mean like just the range of performances like clockers yeah, like mm. like he is savage in Clockers, and same thing with in Malcolm X too. Like in Malcolm X, it's like, and then but then you see him dying at the end of Malcolm X, and it's just the ability to go from someone who is powerful in the streets to this frail old man. It says just his ability to to convey that idea is just says a lot about like how he's trying to portray mortality and all these things. And I just thought it was, it was really good. And I completely agree that he's underutilized because listen, we live at the end of the day, we live in a world where it's like, what are you doing at the box office? And think that's why one, I like filmmakers like Spike Lee because they don't give a fuck and like independent film, because this is, you know, this is, he's an important actor. And I think if we're looking at, show me your Delroy Lindo reel. This is the primary thing. I'm probably going to show you mm -hmm. bits and pieces of the monologue where he's like, this is one of those on the tombstone films, in my opinion. For yeah, me. this is, uh, yeah, this is the vehicle, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this kind of like, like you said, like kind of like being a vehicle for him gets him kind of more roles and more prominent features, or at least like, you know, place in, so I could, I could see this guy doing like, you know, prestige dramas on, on uh, HBO or whatever. Like, there's so many, like, ways that he could be, like, more utilized or, like, roles for him, especially. Like, I think that's a good idea, though. I think, I think the idea of him in, you know, in series, because, listen, when you're, when you're going through, you want someone who can really sink their teeth into a character when it comes to, especially, like, you know, prime TV, you know what I mean? High-end TV, like HBO, Netflix, that kind of thing. And I think he's someone who gets utilized for it. Because look at it like this. Steve Buscemi wasn't starring in shit. And then he was yeah. in Boardwalk Empires and he was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It completely changed and it can completely change his sort of like character brand. Yeah. It recontextualized it. And mm. I think that like he's the guy with crazy eyes in Adam Sandler movies. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's like he's doing this. And I think that I'm hoping 
this is kind of the same thing for him. You know what I mean? Like he's 67. He's still got good acting years left. He's experienced. He's talented. And, you know, he, he puts himself into it. Um, what about other, well, first of all, you know what? I want to ask a question. What is our, is this our favorite Delroy Lindo performance? Just to put a bow on it. Who? Uh, I I probably would have to go back to um, Malcolm X, but that's also could be because I've seen that more recently. Yeah. Clockers. I probably haven't, haven't seen Clockers in maybe like six, seven years. Um, but Malcolm X like comes to mind before this. But for me, like Crooklyn is like holds a special place, especially because he's playing like an analog to Spike Lee's father in that movie, and like mm. it's kind of uh, Spike Lee's kind of like bio, uh, uh, biopic, kind of about his kind of childhood and upbringing, and I loved. The father figure role he plays in uh in in Crooklyn with Spike. Yeah, I I I go between this and Mal- Malcolm X for sure. I think it would have to be this sort of comes in first, just slightly by the nose. But I also think it's it's because of nostalgia, just like over and saying like I think it's it's like I mean how many times have I watched Malcolm X? I couldn't tell you. And how much it, how much is it it's, is it so synced in my in my in my DNA? So I think that's what plays a role. But like you're like you're like you were saying, um, this is like what would be on his tombstone. I think this is his calling card. So based on that alone, I think this would be the the choice for me. What are our thoughts on some of the other performances, um, Jonathan? Let's start with Jonathan Majors. I thought Jonathan Majors did a, a fantastic job of holding his own and like kind of playing, you know, a supporting actor to Delroy and to, De- to Delroy's kind of like hauntedness, his like extreme PTSD. And like, you know, like he was the common calming force, like when, you know, he would freak out or whatever. And like that scene with him on the landmine, and he's kind of like looking with like, you know, so much fear in his eyes and he's like kind of reconnecting with his dad through this whole trip and he just shows up. And I, I just thought he did a fantastic job, like even from like the, the scene in the hotel room when he's like, oh, you can't come with us. And he kind of just fits in with the cast. And like, he's, you know, the young guy in a room full of really experienced and really talented actors, but he like, he never felt off-putting or he didn't belong on screen with any of them. I completely agree. I think it was, it was su- such a pleasure seeing him. I, I don't know if I knew, if I went in knowing that he was, he was going to, he was in the, in the film. So I think when he came on screen for me, I was like, ah, last man from, from San Francisco. So it was, it was, it was nice to see him. And then, yeah, he completely, completely kept up and he, yeah, I think he made a nice connection between the different generations. Like you have these old, the older generation, but then like, you know, as the viewer, I guess we kind of almost lived through him. So yeah, it, it was a nice addition. When I found out he was cast, I, I assumed that he was going to be playing a, a younger version of... Oh, right. I thought it was going to be him and Chadwick playing like the younger versions of them. So I was really uh, surprised to see how, the way they included him. And he wasn't yeah, the first choice, eh? He was, uh, they, no, so what happened was there was original casting ideas, like, for example, ironically, it was supposed to be Samuel L. Jackson, Giancarlo Esposito, Don Cheadle as the, as part of the original groups. Interesting. Um, and then John David Washington was supposed, who is so funny. Uh, yeah. Ah, uh, true. Okay. Yeah. I, could, I could totally see that. Yeah. So, like, that was the, uh, because, I mean, he's going to roll with them after Black Klansman, right? Yeah. And, and rightly so. But I think what happened was he may have got tied up in Tenet. 
I yep. think, yeah. was at the same time. So, Giancarlo Esposito, Samuel Jackson sounds great. Sometimes these things in Hollywood lore work out, and I think this is an example of this, because, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Washington would have been fantastic. He's talented, obviously has the pedigree, but Jonathan Majors, I think it's like, he's less known in the, you know, in the wider film pantheon, you know, right at, at this moment. And I really hope this leads to kind of more because like, I like how Washington is an example. He was, you know, he's kind of become the, becoming the man of the hour right now. And I think that as, you know, attitudes fucking change in Hollywood and realizing that there's some like excessively talented black actors who should get more opportunities. I hope actors like Jonathan Majors are part of that because, you know, you get to, because there's so many underutilized talents and we have so many bad movies come out. <laughs> fucking bad but acting. I think, well, I think with like um, Lovecraft co co uh, Country, like I, I think this is a good way to kind of get him in sort of people's eyes, but I'm very also excited to see what happens with Lovecraft, because that's his vehicle, too. Yeah. yeah. I feel like this is like, yeah, yeah, I feel like this is like, oh, this is Delroy, all right, do your thing. Um, and he played a great role, but I for, for, for Lovecraft, I feel like we're going to see him, because I think that's an HBO, HBO yes. series, right? So Yeah, I think it comes it's out. Gonna be, yeah, yeah, so I think it can, the continuous um of us seeing him in a role over a period of time i think i think people are going to see his magic i think that's a good point because uh if the gentleman i'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman from the night of on hbo rizamed yes rizamed yes right yeah so yeah, 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 i yeah. thought that that so that that series which was fantastic um really kind of put him in the spotlight and people kind mm -hmm. of you know it was a good vehicle for his talent so i think lovecraft especially because hbo is doing it too so it's going to be well done and you have Jordan um, Peele as exa well. Exactly, exactly. It's Jordan Peele. And Jordan Peele, like, even down to, like, his friggin' Twilight Zone, like, his stuff is good, right? And that's yeah. on a friggin' network. And it's <laughs> fucking good, right? Like, it's not HBO, and, it, and he made it good. So I think everything is there for him to succeed in that, and hopefully that's, the, you know, that is the case. I, I felt that the other, like, some of the actors, again, the actors were clock. Uh, Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock. I thought the chemistry with them, with the larger group, was really good, and there was like enough balance between the playfulness between them of like old friends. Because I mean, like familiarity breeds contempt, and then also it creates a bond. And I think they were able to show the contradictions and duality of that in their relationships. So I mean, how did you feel about those, those performances? Yeah, well, I think, like, obviously, you have Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and um, Clark Peters have known each other for decades, like, going back to The Wire. So I think, like, having them in it together as, a, like, a duo, and I think, like, you had Clark Peters kind of narrating and, and carrying the story for a lot of it. I, also, I would say he's another, like, underutilized actor who I don't see, yeah. like, pop up too much, and, like, I don't see him in many roles. He was on uh, HBO show, um recently but another guy that you don't see too often so like when you do see him like oh, was it that fantasy show yeah yeah, oh, um, yeah, yeah the philip paulman series but yeah it's kind of like you get these i don't know if you've watched the wire you see the wire actors pop up and a lot of them you're like oh finally i get to see you again other ones you know have gone on to bigger careers and more like mainstream success but uh i think he was really really powerful in it i like i like that addition of chadwick because of Chadwick's kind of playing like Black Panther and playing like these kind of mm. big 
hero roles and then you transition him into this and like in their minds he's mythologized as a hero as well so it kind of adds to his like kind of off-screen persona like bleeds onto the screen so yeah. i thought that was that was super important i think all as a as a composition as a unit i think the the older men was like their chemistry all together really worked. I felt, I did feel like some of the like tissuary cast, I think they were brought in maybe just to fill the their necessary roles, just to move the story. Like the white folks that were stopping the mind. I think they did what they needed to do, but there was almost such a great performance between the main characters that the secondary characters, they did feel like just like set pieces or not set pieces, but just like pieces to move the story across. Yeah, I think as soon as you introduce them and you say they're clearing minds out, like you know that one of the characters is going to step on a mine. And even though that scene was really tense, it just seemed kind of like it was really easily set up. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, we, we Earlier we know that there's people hunting for mines and now they're, he's going to back up into a mine. Yeah, they're like randomly in a forest. Oh, okay, there's definitely going to be an obstacle with the mine. Yeah, there's too much, check, there's too much of a Chekhov's gun in that situation when they show up, and it's yeah. like, we supply mines. Like, that's the only thing I was like, maybe, like, these motherfuckers are stepping on mines later. Um, <laughs> like, that is definitely going to happen. I'm predicting it. I thought that, I thought the same. I didn't think that they were, it, you know what it is? It's just that these guys could have died in the shootout at the end. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you could have taken out that whole scene, and then there was, like, the weird pseudo- like sexual tension between John yes. Major's characters and yes. like Melanie Thierry's fucking the only one who I liked is Jean Reno. Um, yeah, I like John Reno too. Because like he's just good no matter what. Like he's good in fucking everything. Yeah. So like he's he's like you know a f- French Delroy Lindo in that respect where like you could pop him somewhere, and even if the movie's bad, he's oh, yeah, gonna Jean Reno. He's yeah. gonna end up being good, the professional himself. Um, yes. so not walking around with a 13 year old girl. That's good to see. Um, <laughs> so I know, and I felt the same way. And I, I know to your point about the way Chadwick Boseman's character was kind of, you know, idolized and mythologized. I mean, I loved that. Like I thought that yeah. was, and it's like, he's like this, it's like, he's more of a symbol than a character, you know, a symbol of what they aspire to be. They aspire to be, you know, like strong black men in a world where it's difficult to be that. And, yeah, because you and have he, him as like what the captain or something like that. Like yeah. you said, like many and like they yeah. compare him. They're like, oh, he was our Malcolm, our, our Martin. So they like, you know, it's like very ingrained in this within the, the mythology yeah. of the story. I I honestly think that was like the best performance I've ever seen him do. To be honest, I know it's very small, but I mean, I'm a I'm a fan of Chadwick, but I was also watching like. 42 and um the little was a little richard no the james brown um um biopic where he wasn't you know he wasn't the standout actor i mean he had some man playing a role suited for him biopic ish um i mean you could even make that same argument in black panther where i mean you're not expecting oscar-winning performances but he played the role of just you know being that sort of blockbuster figure whereas even in the short time with this role like you really like you really see it like range and that was exciting to see he's very good like yeah he's quite good yeah i would definitely i would definitely say the same thing i think like i've seen like i saw 21 bridges recently which i like but i think like in a lot of movies he's either doing like this like faux african accent 
which is which is honestly like not i'm i love black panther but that i mean i mean as an african individual yeah like it was there was moments where it was tough you know what i mean yeah no definitely it's like a little like it's like it's enjoyable for what it is but you're kind of like Like, so how (laughs) off was his accent that because like i'm the son of an englishman so if i can hear a bad british accent in two seconds so like what was it so how far off totally far off good attempt how was it I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll say it was a good attempt. I don't. I think it was like not so far off that I'm like I cannot sit through this. But I also don't think it was so good that it was like considered good acting. Yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Like, I no, feel no, no, like... it, it totally does. <laughs> it to- no, no, it totally I, does. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if someone is like, oh yeah, that's a, that's an okay accent. All right, like I'll buy it. It's adequate. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I have trouble like how he got roped into doing it because he he does like one of like Gods of Egypt, and then he's also in this another movie I saw on Netflix called like Message from the King, where he plays this sex. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know, like you know, like why don't you cast like a- African actors for some? No, he has he has a Nigerian look though. I'm not yeah. like I feel like if you were to tell me he's from Nigeria, I'd be like, okay, bet. Yeah. You know you know what I mean. So even when I, when I heard the accent, I almost wanted to be like, yo, just look. Like look deeper. There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did we? But need... I think he's just. I think he's just straight up American, though. Did yeah. we need more Chadwick Boseman in this movie, or was this just enough? I think it was a perfect amount. Yeah. Same. Yeah, man. Sometimes same. it's just like a Dion Waiters situation where he comes in, pops like twelve points, and you're fucking good, and that's all you yeah. need, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So, and I, and I think it's it's more of the story versus him. Yes. I think even if he was. Um, was even more amazing like the story wouldn't make sense i think that there is a argument for being sparing you know what i mean mm-hmm. like leave them yeah. wanting more i feel this way exactly. about like heath ledger in bat in uh dark knight whereas mm-hmm. i want him to be on screen all the time and yeah but that that all right, want, all right, r.i.p yeah that want of them being on screen is good because it means that they've done something right and they're not like, you're not just like, get the fuck out of here. Um, so I want to talk about, we talked a little bit about the chemistry, the cinematography in terms of how it was shot. I mean, we talked about the aspect ratios. Like, how were you guys with that? Did you thought that they, tra- I thought they transitioned that pretty smoothly. I love the colors Yeah. in general. Um, and it's, I guess, specifically even in the, in the transitions. I think the going, I think it, it looks 16 millimeter, but it could have been all like, like um, I'm done after the fact and post. But it, it from 16 millimeter to whatever the the the, the definition was, um, I think it works seemingly because of the pairing in colors. Hmm. I think the overall cinematography was fantastic. I love like I the palette um, for for Vietnam for me like it was done respectfully it didn't go the the green approach Mm. um or or is it yellow uh for areas of poor countries that's become very common um it was it it was done it was done really well and i think it was shot really well yeah i think i enjoyed like there's some shots that like really stood out to me i think you know the shot of them kind of like doing this like almost soul train line in in the club Uh, and you like the the dolly yeah and (laughs) i was was, spike lee dolly I was waiting for the actual dolly shot that happens like towards the end of the film, like right at the end of the film. But like, I, I enjoyed that dolly shot, like following through and like the 
kind of color palette in like the washed outness of the neon. The cinematographer also like worked on Drive. I saw, and I don't know if he's worked oh, with Spike true. Lee before, though. Yeah, he's worked with Spike Lee before. Uh, Newton Thomas Siegel. He's yeah. uh, I he's 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 a great cinematographer. Drive looks incredible. That's funny you mentioned that. It's yeah. fucking fantastic. Uh, it they didn't they had to argue to do this on sixteen mil because Netflix was kind of like you know. Uh, you're shooting in Vietnam and uh, there's nowhere to process that film. So you literally have mm. to take, you have to send the rushes home to be processed because they don't have the processing facilities. And then also, I mean, 35, you can swing, but like, like, and also the film, like it's a high grain film stock. So they were just like trying to find it was also yeah. difficult. So, I mean, like I'm always excited when filmmakers are trying to do that. You know, they're trying to, you know, they're sticking to their guns about things and shooting on 16 millimeter could be an albatross, but they made it work. And I, your comment, um, Neil, about the, just the color palette and not using more of like a sepia tone or yeah. for, you know, like an impoverished country, like Vietnam is a beautiful country, regardless of what has happened there. Right. Mm-hmm. A beautiful country filled with beautiful people. And I like the idea that there was like still a visual romance with it, especially in the cities. And right. I mean, it was very, it was still you know, I think even compared to some other Spike Lee movies, very lush, especially his earlier works, right? Where uh, his films, I feel, definitely had a little bit more of, a, like, well, not a little bit, like a, def- a distinctively more gritty tone to yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, this is the most I've seen him, like, really push his colors. Mm. Yeah, there's, 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 I wouldn't say a, a complete wash in his films, but there is some, like, a consistent, very consistent palette that he uses. Yeah, they're meant to look rugged. Uh, yeah, yeah, but with this one, you're like, oh, okay. Um, well, it's very pretty. Like, when it goes, when they show, especially the, um, especially, you know, when they're going through the jungle and it goes to the to the full res, to the full screen, like, these mm-hmm. these vistas are look, it's like, it's very, very well shot. It looks fucking great. And I love the little nods to um, Apocalypse Now that they're dropping in there as well um in the shooting like because the, the the club's name is apocalypse now and they have and they're going they're going down the river they they show it snaking through the boat snaking through the river they have ride of the valkyries playing and then they try to shoot it in when it when it's the full screen and more of that cinemascope style and i love the subtle nods i love that they did that with it you know like that's another thing about you know spike lee and the way he shoots these films you know with the cinematographers is that there's it's like a it's like a it's one thing I think he's taken really well from Martin Scorsese is that it's almost like a film lesson as you're going through it. Little nods mm-hmm. to things, um, to different filmmakers, going back even to the silent era with stuff. And I just th- think that's it goes back to the, my PBS uh, fucking anecdote and how <laughs> it's like it's very it's like it's like you're learning something like Spike Lee films are the kinds that you're throwing in the fucking library of Congress. Like that's just straight up, you know, a hundred percent. Yeah. I think you get that with Spike, right? Like you get, you get his love for film for like a lot of different kinds of film. You get his like passion for like the genre and like, he's a movie maker to make movies, you know? And like, I think too, with him, like not really ever being like a big studio director, like he's always kind of, retained his art house style and like even in films that are like the bigger budget films like this is one of his biggest biggest budget films but like even in like an inside man there's still nods and subtle references to you know like the techniques that he's come up using and he loves and like you know these elements that kind of like always kind of lend themselves to his filmmaking 
Mm. Yeah, and I and I, I think it's the poetry of him. I think his his film his films are very poetic, and I think with this one probably the most with with a full on monologue. And I think he he does it so well that. I am not taken out of the experience. And I don't know how you manage to do that. Like a film that is, you know, uh, pseudo, pseudo realistic, um, realistic premise. You're depicting characters in a realistic way, going to find gold that, you know, they happen to be lost. And all of a sudden there is a full on one man show that I think lasts for like, what, 20 minutes or whatever, maybe not 20 minutes, but a, a good duration of time. And and it, it all fits. And I think that's the, the difference between a Spike Lee war film and a David Fincher war film mm. or a Michael Mann war film or, a, you know, Christopher Nolan war film. Like the, the, po- the poetry um, and still implementing that poetry that it, you don't feel like you're out of the experience is something that like Spike Lee has just mastered. Yeah, and it's interesting because you mentioned about the art house because like he uh, do the right thing. School days, um, she's got to have it. Like these are films that came up through the independent film scene, right? And that's what happened, and that becomes massive in the '90s. You know, the the Sundance generation, and I think his films are a massive. Um, influence on that and I think one thing about this movie and I think especially how it contrasts to Muriel Tsigana which I which was a movie I enjoyed is that yeah me too me too not this, a lot of people did but listen I think listen at the end of the day I think I, I don't know how well it was far more Hollywood you know I think it was more it was more like this is more about characters and it's shot as such the camera is right up in Delroy Lindo's face you know what I mean? And that is a creative choice that I admire because it it's filling the screen with the talent and letting the talent do the work. Yeah. And yeah. it's subtle movement in, in camera and that and not flashy or anything, but it's like music. The notes you're not playing are just important as the ones you are playing. And I think that's kind of his MO for deciding... Uh, how to choose camera positions and that kind of thing. Like, I definitely think he definitely comes from a Gordon Willis school. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, I think this was able to accomplish something in that it was, I feel like the, some of the camera techniques as Miracle San is despite being um, a more Hollywood movie, just in the way it's executed, I felt that it, the attempt to make it look gritty was greater than this movie, but this film was infinitely more gritty because mm-hmm. they were able to do that in ways that are, because everyone can like, you know, shoot on a, on a, on a, you know, weird film stock or put a LUT on a camera to make it look extra grainy and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's him, a combination of all the elements coming together. And that's how really you're defining the best filmmakers. The best filmmakers take all the elements and create a mood with all of them working together. It's yeah. not just manipulative mu- music. It's not just a shaky fucking handheld camera. It's, you know, it's, it's all these elements working together. And I think that this is among his best shot films. For me, I'm like, for his best shot films you're looking at, um, I love Malcolm X and the way it's shot, especially the scene where they're all in the streets with Peter Boyle's character. You know, also though, I'm like with you guys where there's a bias because I've seen Malcolm X a million times. Yeah. And also I feel like Malcolm X hits a greater cultural note as well because like it's, things like that have, it's why 
Malcolm X will always be in people's minds. Um, the social network will always be in people's minds because it like commands the zeitgeist of a particular feeling. Even with Malcolm X, who was talking about history, it was, you know, when it was put out and how it was put out and, you know, the importance that people cast upon it, which it fucking rightfully deserves. It, it, it makes it stay in the consciousness a lot more. Whereas mm -hmm. like some of his, and like I, other films that compare to that are do the right thing. You know, and I right. think those are the films that are able to do that of his. I hope that this one does that too, but you know, it it, it it it's it's hard. I think I think though it's timely, and I think it was put out at fucking the exact right time. Especially since there's no good movies coming out, and then this yeah. comes out, it almost like gives you a reprieve from the nothingness. Do Do you think the the fact that it's a Netflix release will have like a, any like you know negative effects on it? Not anymore. No. Not anymore. If you had said this, asked me this two years ago, I'd say yes. I I think that it's I think that Netflix now is especially given what's going on with COVID, like yeah. Netflix Netflix is fine, like their shooting their their shooting is going to be interrupted, but their release methodology is intact. Yeah, I think that was a such a smart play. I think I think Ori. I mean, he would have been in, he would have been Christopher Nolan right now with Tenet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, yeah. just just wait. Just exactly. One hundred. Whereas, whereas, like you know, we're all experiencing. We're talking about it. It's, uh, it's it's something that, and it's something we can continuously rewatch. I I I definitely think there's a there's certain films or even today, um, I would and it, it, if it went on Netflix and I would be like for that type of movie, uh, maybe you should have went another route, like a more traditional route. But I think no, I think I think that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, and I, but I think I think with Netflix, for you to really succeed in a premiere in Netflix, um, speaking from a non-expert, I think if you have notoriety going for you, people are gonna run to your film. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if so, like, if I don't even need to, I might not even need to watch the trailer, but like the moment on the big splash page, Spike Lee joint, like I'm watching it, you yeah. know, I mean, it's a lot more difficult when you're, you know, in a, in a director starting out and you're looking for sort of that, you're trying to build that notoriety, releasing a film on Netflix, not, not to say that it's wrong, you're going to have a hard time to get, getting eyes on it. Yeah, like I think your point, like for example, if Tenet came out on Netflix, that's not going to work out. It's just not. Yeah, you're going to have to yeah. make. Yeah, I, I, I think that is. I think that is the counter to my point, and I completely um, agree with that. I think for Spike Lee, Netflix is perfect because one, oh, perfect. Netflix leaves you the fuck alone. Like when you go with like Netflix doesn't sign someone like Spike Lee, and people don't flock to Netflix just because they have cash. They have cash, but also because like. You kind, they kind of want f people to come in with the work done. So if you're yeah. someone at Spike Lee's level, you're coming in with, you know, you have your infrastructure, you have all these things, and it works out. And also, Spike Lee's the kind of filmmaker who is mainstream, but he's not really, really, really mainstream. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if someone wants to sample his work, like if School Days or She's Gotta Have It, like She's Gotta Have It was on Netflix. So someone isn't like people aren't going to go to the theater necessarily to go see it or they may not yeah. have back in the day but now you can introduce it to an entire generation who's raised on netflix and chill you know like absolutely and netflix. it's like it's it's like tenant tenant is a, a film where it's like i mean it can't work on netflix because it is this massive 
sort of roller coaster type experience, you know, a little it's tenant is one of those things where it's like the perfect um, a mesh of blockbuster, but also, um, you know, artistic merit, like there's there, there, you're going to get a great story from it, you know, um, because it's Christopher Nolan, um, but you need to experience it in the theater. It's not going to work at home. Yeah. Kyle, what do you think of uh, Irishman in theaters? Because I, I didn't end up seeing it in theater. I only saw it on Netflix. Well, this is actually going to, this is, was a point I was just about to make. Like, I sat during the theater. I was an idiot and smoked a joint before I went in. Uh. And then, like, friggin' two, two, two and a half hours into this shit, I'm, like, half asleep. And I'm, like, when is this going to end? And then, action, and then all of a sudden, Action Bronson selling caskets, and I perked up a little yeah. bit. Um... Only so I could re- only so I could turn to my friend and be like, "See, he sounds like Ghostface Killer." Um, <laughs> so this guy's biting. Um, so like, it's it's one of those things where like, okay, I went to the movie theater to see it because I I will I go out for Martin Scorsese. There's a few filmmakers I go out for every time. Right. Uh, yeah. Spike Lee's fucking one of them, and I go out for him. I went to it, and I'm like, this is the longest thing I've ever seen, and there was all these recommendations of ways to watch it as a four-part series on netflix and i think that's <laughs> genius because let's say you want to watch De- uh, defy bloods right and you're like uh yeah. i don't like i gotta make time in my schedule to go to a movie and all this shit and yeah. all this and you can just sit at home have dinner simultaneously hang out with your family simultaneously and watch a friggin' awesome movie and also like i think that Listen, I'm pro-Netflix mostly, minus a few things that have to do with their relationship to the Canadian government in terms of the film industry and the Canadian Media Fund. But generally, mm-hmm. I think it's good for filmmakers because they're putting out a lot of content and they are driving other companies to develop a lot of content as well because they're the industry standard right now. And what that is, is good for creators. And yeah. so I'm very pro the whole going the Netflix route. And like when you look at their business model, and I spent a lot of time studying their business model, the feature film part of it kind of scared me because feature film right now isn't a good business. It's that's why you have all these superhero movies coming out. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, like the studios are so risk averse that like, it's not a, the theatrical release isn't necessarily the route for groundbreaking films anymore. And I'm, does this movie get made? It's Spike Lee. So maybe, but like even, you have someone like Spielberg had to like argue for Lincoln to be made, right? Because it wasn't the normal Spielberg temple. So I don't think that, I think that if you just rely on the mainstream release of films, you're going to miss out on so much stuff. And the independent situation isn't like it was in the nineties right now. So it's like, this is where we kind of go for it. If that makes any sense. Do you feel that, because I've been, I've been like, like, you know, I'm, I may have not been like studying it like, that in depth, but I've been observing how, like, it's almost like all the different avenues of filmmaking have, have been sort of morphing into whatever ultimately they're going to be. But like, if, of course, you got your Netflix and then, you know, like feature films, like, it's again so risk adverse that it's like oh if it's not a bake then when i don't care but then you have companies like you know a24 that i mean without seeing their numbers seemingly like look like they have they found an approach Mm. um that they're able to and this is a question like it's like because from from the outset it looks like 
A24 is building a brand and, they, and they're able to build and they're able to produce and um, distribute these great films. Like, have they found a winning, like a winning approach or is it a bubble that it's just, it's eventually going to collapse in on itself because there's not enough, um, there's not enough revenue generation for those type of films. I think that a, like A24 has a good business model and they're kind of able to make it work. It's just like, how can you sustain that? Which is why, for example, with Netflix, I'm like, okay, they're putting all of this money into feature films. Some of them really suck. And they are in like, they, they are not like Apple where they or like a fucking Amazon or anything like that, where there is a massive non-film diverse infrastructure economically around them. Right. So, for example, if Apple decides to produce feature films and the feature films don't work, work out, there is a diverse method of bringing yeah. in more revenue that can bolster yeah. the company. And with their sales for hardware and software, the film industry is just a drop in that is a drop in the bucket for them. Yeah. For them, it's yeah. just their push for service based to Me, move towards to an end. Yeah, toward to, it's just part of their push towards service based industries, right? So, but mm. with Netflix, it's like it's like a Cortez we burnt our ships situation. So <laughs> we're in it, and we're in it or dead. You know what I mean? Like we're either going to succeed and be at a high level one or two with maybe someone like HBO. And, but if they don't succeed, it's over or they're bought out. So like, I'm like, oh, they keep emptying money into feature films and like their subscription <laughs> and like, there's like, it's only, it's not a lot of content, you know, like for them, you like qu quality is important, but you also do need quantity. So it's like, if you don't start producing good movies, then you're going to, you're losing hundred, a hundred, like a hundred million dollars a pop. It's yeah. a, like it's a dangerous way of operating but they're getting talent in now like really big talent in now so that's good how do you feel that this film tackled you know the black experience in vietnam especially compared to like other movies yeah well i think, I think there's like there's not a it's not a huge genre like the black war film like you know spike lee's made like two of, of the big black war films there's uh red tails which is i think spielberg um, no, that's George, uh, that's George, George Lucas. Lucas. Yeah. Lucas, George Lucas. Yeah. And then there's, there's like the Tuskegee yeah. Airman movie with um Lawrence Fishburne back in like yeah the, the HBO movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's not a lot kind of surrounding the genre, and I think you know this is one, and I think you know the way the archival footage is used to set the tone of like what was happening you know back in the states at the same time as this like ten year incursion into Vietnam and kind of juxtaposing you know the treatment at home and with you know the imperialism that's that they're forcing on another country is super interesting and then you have the same kind of thing in miracle at saint anna when you have you know showing the, the german pow's getting treated better than them like you know at, at the army base so i i know I, I think like this is a super important story to tell and like you know there's been books about it and there's you know other recollections of it but i think it doesn't like super lay like heavy handed on like the black war experience in this film because it's like a, a story about other things. But I think having that as a backdrop is important. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Like, I think it doesn't like, and not, not in a negative way per se, but it, it's, it, it's not driving that home. I think there's, there's accents of it. Um, and I think like they're, they speak about it, uh, and I think it ties in the overall experience um, with being black in America. But 
I would I would love to see more films um, that highlight the very um, specific experience um, of 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 black soldiers, um, especially especially in Vietnam. I think Dead Presidents did that a little bit. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar there. Oh yeah, it's the, such a good movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where, but even though the whole the film wasn't necessarily a Vietnam film, it's almost the the climax that it got to, where the character the character's motivations was based on the experience of being black in Vietnam. Um, and I think the difference between Dead Presidents is it leaned more into drama, it leaned more into action drama, whereas. I don't. I think if you try to do that too much with this film, it takes away. It takes away from, I guess, the surface level because it's hard. It's hard to really put this film in, in genre, like in a genre. Like for me, it's like there's an element that it, it's very serious. It's um, um, there's a protest element to it, but there's also a fun ride up until the climax where you know they're trying to get money and like you know they they have the one one last sort of like um um alamo type type well it's like the dirty it's like the dirty end. dozen you know what i mean yeah or like exactly. kelly's here or like kelly's heroes exactly exactly so it's like are are, are they going to succeed against the with all the odds against them so there's there's that element where i, I don't think it would have fared too well with going like you know directly to and to into that topic but i would love to see more film more films do that though i like the idea of it using that as a backdrop uh, you know the black experience of vietnam as a black uh, sorry as a back backdrop backdrop <laughs> um <laughs> so like like because this way you're like normalizing the experience of that being in a movie you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like this is an acceptable backdrop for movies and we should learn more about it. You know what I mean? And have it be more of the experience because it was like a huge part, especially of Vietnam. Like obviously there was a lot of black soldiers who served in, you know, in the Second World War in Korea. But Vietnam was very distinctively poor people getting you know getting drafted and at the time in the united states you know unfortunately it was disproportionately you know people of color and i thought he was able to do that and what it allows him to do is it creates a canvas for him to paint genre on top of it you know what i mean yeah. and i i love that he does that because this is what i this is i love the inside man right but for me it's like not a spike lee movie it's not like it's missing it's missing the list i enjoy it and the fucking it's great and the performances are fantastic and denzel is just killing it on screen uh clive owen's fantastic but it doesn't have that that context that it's his most hollywood movie i think and it doesn't yeah, have that it doesn't yeah, hundred percent it doesn't have the context of the rest of his films where it's almost like i missed it it's like yo i wanted that spike that was good but i but i feel like and that's kind of i'm not too sure that old, old boy come after inside man oh i don't i don't talk about yes. spike lee's old boy yeah, yeah we don't talk <laughs> we don't about talk, spike lee's old we boy talk, yes. we, we don't talk about okay but the the film that we we may not mention, I think that was right after that. So there's a there's a that projection of like, okay, let me try to get some more of this studio cash, because Inside Man, you know, I don't know how much of the box office was, but it was an extremely talked about film. Yeah. So I think like because he tailored it more in like a traditional sort of blockbuster um, structure, mm. it 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 shot him in the foot. Yeah, I like it's like it's, Inside Men was great, but everything after, because he went that trajectory. 
Yeah, like the old boy. First of all, we didn't need to remake the, which is now the Voldemort of this podcast. The fucking <laughs> Spike Lee, the Spike Lee old boy. Um, because the original is so intensely amazing. Um, uh-huh. You know, that that educational epitus, it goes back to the PBS thing. Like, that's, I want that. I want that. Yeah. I want that feeling from Spike Lee because he's, it makes him super unique. It's one of the things that means, like, if you want what Spike Lee is serving, you're not getting it anywhere else. Yeah, and it's like it's like poetic, poetic Ken Burns. Yeah, it's Ken Burns without the passing out. You know, like, listen, yeah. I, listen, <laughs> listen. I love Ken Burns, but like, if hey, I'm watching, chill on the, chill on the Ken Burns slander, yeah. No, no, I, I am, I am absolutely pro <laughs> Ken Burns. It's just like I'm have to be lucid when I watch it, uh-huh, uh-huh, right? Yeah. I can't be like, uh, like a blunt in. <laughs> or like watching like Absolutely watching not. like watching the movie watching baseball um, <laughs> watching episode seven of baseball like <laughs> right and even but he, but even even his documentaries like my i was with you on the when the levees broke that documentary is chilling every oh minute of it just his ability to put it together and it's awesome because his visual style is continual through documentary and through his dr- drama yeah, and the I way think... he puts it together, right? Yeah, I, I just watched four, like Four Little Girls. Uh, oh, another great week. one. Heartbreaking, yeah, yeah. heartbreaking. Completely heartbreaking, but like, it, it, it just, like, yeah, like you said, it just continues his visual style and, and it like, he just shines through and it's like, you know, you can tell it's Spike Lee across genres, you know, it's not like he's going into this like documentary style and make a documentary. It's like, it's a documentary, but it's still like a Spike Lee joint. Yeah. It's, still, like, a, it's still filmed. There's branding, and he's smart to yeah. do it like that. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you four little girls. There's two two documentaries that have made me like cry right away. That's one of them. And there's this documentary called uh, "White Light, Black Rain." It was about the um, it was about the Hiroshima bombing, and it was just talking about like the civilian impact on it, and it just was just heart wrenching to watch. And I just think that his and he did it in such a way that was so like perfect for the material like it wasn't heavy-handed like he didn't have to inject things into it he just really told the story and contextualized it and how what its impact on america and the civil rights movement was and i just i i think that's what's really great about him i would love to see you know other black filmmakers do this because this is interesting because this shit gets left out as part of history it just gets you know funneled in under black history when um you know there's no alternate reality it's fucking the same history and um especially with vietnam because like vietnam in the Mer- in the context of the Amer- of american history and especially 20th century american history you know it's not enough up until only up until really recently it was really washed out in terms of its context in the civil rights era and i i like that this level of storytelling with it that's kind of combining it and showing the contextualization with the civil rights movement and i think you know his his films are incredible um and i think that this is just you know another one but yeah as again the his docs um you know uh when the levy brokes was absolutely so good so Uh, so good yeah um so i guess the big the kind of questions to kind of sum all of this up you know i have two one can spike lee do a war movie and two where does this stand in the pantheon of spike lee movies like to the first question i think is like yes he can do a war movie because i think even like looking back at miracle saint anna it has one of my favorite war like shots in like any movie i think when 
the American soldiers are about to fire on on um, on the black soldiers because they can't believe they've gotten that far, and they're like kind of taking fire from the German soldiers at the same time, and it leaves like a lot of them dead. I thought like that was like a really fantastic shot, really fantastic mm. scene, and it also like spoke to the experience of black soldiers in that like they were fighting a war on two fronts, you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think this film didn't have as many great like you know, war shocks. And I think like it almost speaks to kind of what you're saying before. Like this film was like maybe at its heart, like a Western kind of set in Vietnam. It's like the backdrop. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't play as big a role. So I I don't know. I think it might be hard to even just think about now, like call it like as much of a war movie. It's more like a, like a friendship movie, like an adventure movie, adventure movie, like a father son movie. Like there's a lot of different elements. Yeah, movie. yeah, and I mean, to your question about can Spike Lee make a war movie, and I think the answer is a resounding yes. Uh, I think I think it was like I mentioned earlier, he's a very poetic filmmaker, um, and maybe people's like idea of war is gritty, like you know, shaky camera, Saving mm-hmm. Private Ryan, but yeah. you know, Thin Red Line. I mean, Terrence Malick is, has to be one of the most poetic filmmakers out there. I mean, with his shots of like nature for half the films he makes, <laughs> and Thin Red Tree Line. Life. Was a, yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and for me, I mean, Thin Red Line like is is is, is such a great war film um, because it captures so many different elements of elements of without just being about oh shit was bad over there. So because of Spike Lee's style. I don't know if he's headed home yet. I like Miracle Santa Ana, but I think like if it really put his in it, like if he went full tilt, I think we can see an amazing war film because like to Coburn's point, I don't, I don't, I, I think this is a, Five Bloods is a, a, a war backdrop uh, yeah. of a dramatic film of, of characters. Um, in the place of where it is amongst all other films, I, I uh, that's tough. Um, I I like this more than Black Klansman. I think it's in the area of his newer films. Um, I I don't even want to even try to have comparisons of his like gold plated work from his past. Mm. Um, but I did I I did like this more than Black Klansman. I don't know if it's a better film. I just personally liked it more. Um, and I think it's. Better than the Chirac's of the world, or the, even oh, the sweet, the, yeah. the sweet blood of Jesus. You know, I I think this is probably, with comparison to Black Klansman, um, his best his best work after his you know the film that we don't talk about. Period. Yeah, I think this is. I you can obviously you can do a war film. I I what I th- I think he has the his ability to take the chops and the you know and all the influence and interpret that into his own stories because some people are just regurgitating right whereas he is like injecting things into it that's where you get into the dirty dozen type you know caper or heist element to it where there's people are being wise guys and talking shit to each other but then it's wrapped in this idea of it's not so much about the vietnam war the black experience in the vietnam war it's about the black experience after the, the Vietnam War and what are the psychological problems that people are going through. And I think his ability to handle that, if first of all, 
of any kind of film genre, I think he, this film handles that particularly well. Um, so, I mean, in terms of like where it sits, I mean, you know, if you're looking at his pantheon, I think his most enduring work is obviously going to be do the right thing. I think his best narrative work in terms of his ability to tell stories through characters is Malcolm X. Um, because I think he's able in that film to really encapsulate how dynamic you know malcolm x was in terms of his political leanings because he went from a criminal to you know ardent supportive nation of islam to understanding that you know like that all people are can be inherently good and showing that like progression which is kind of really upholds the work that of the autobiography you know and alex haley and i i i think that he's able i think that that malcolm x is his best film from a filmmaking standpoint um i mean when you're when you're looking at after that like it's hard because like things like crooklyn there is these films are so ingrained into like even like mo better blues like i've seen that yeah, fucking million i've seen I it a million times yeah i've seen it like a million yeah. times and i love it and i feel like when i was uh, you know a teenager i watched these movies so much and clockers yeah. i freaking love clockers. Jungle, jungle fever jungle fever you know is good I mean? how good is freaking <laughs> samuel L. jackson in that movie oh it's amazing even, even bamboozled like like i it's feel so like even amazing. that yeah like it's a, it's in its own like that's why it's like, it's like a gold gold, gold, it doesn't get enough love though no it I doesn't know, i know I just I, I was I was like tweeting stuff the other day like I think today actually about like just some clips and how like his 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 approach is satirical material like like so I think he tried it with Chirac again and it was like Ugh. no he, he just missed him. He missed, he, he missed the mark yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, but I, I know he was like oh I could do it bamboozled let me try it with like black men getting killed at a at an alarming rate in Chicago. <laughs> Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it's like no, that's actually like kind of a tragedy that's unfolding yeah. as we speak right now. Yeah, um, like I, I think it's because you know what it is because he he's a funny guy. Like Spike yes. Lee is a fucking joker. Like any like this guy's getting ch like threatened. Like he's getting choke signs from Reggie Miller at the gardens. So like this guy is obviously funny, and he has and you know there's a lot of duality to his personality where he's just like revolutionary figure, but at the same time he's not like. He has pride in himself, but he doesn't take himself too seriously sometimes as well. So yeah. it's hard to balance those ideas. Like, like for example, like the 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 tragedy that's going on in the south side of Chicago, and like I didn't find Chirac anything particularly amusing about it because, especially, mm -hmm. I lived just fucking south of Chicago for a few years, and it's fucking sad, man. Like, so I was a little bit more like, eh, this is no good. But where this movie, I thought he was able to do it because it's in the context of like a bunch of old guys who've known each other for a long time. And there's some things that endure through the tragedy. You know what I mean? Like the ability to at least like enjoy each other's company for a few seconds. So I think he does really well with this. It's just like films like Crooklyn and, you know, and Clockers are like ingrained into my like film, you know, preferences. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I love it. So it's hard for me. I think for any career that his can be compared to, the most accurate one is Martin Scorsese. Because mm -hmm. okay, so Martin Scorsese's got his, you know, he's got his fucking Raging Bull. He's got his Goodfellas and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Spike, Spike Lee has his Malcolm X. He has his Do the Right Thing. But then what sure. about After Hours? After Hours is fucking amazing, but not a lot of people have watched it. I feel this way about some of Spike Lee's films that, like mm -hmm. Mo Better Blues, not a ton of people have watched that movie. That movie's awesome. 
So, like, his ability to even create these, like, gems that don't get noticed as much is really awesome. And I think that you can, like, for anybody, like, I almost envy, like, a, like a film student just getting into Spike Lee. Because yeah. you're about to go see a whole world of shit. 25th, 25th Hour, I think, is so underrated. Like, it's for so me, with, good. The, with it's Spike so Lee, I'd cool. probably, like, have to break him into, like, three periods. And, like, you kind of, like, yes. go that early, like, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, like, period yeah. up to like clockers and then like maybe the next period i'd go maybe to like the early 2000s with like he got game which i think is fantastic yeah i guess he got game bamboozled 25th hour yeah and that's like insane yeah get into this third era so i think in the third era like this film is like really strong and like you know like completely blows like some of the other I, movies we'll talk about I, out of the water but I honestly think there's good. like five. There's like five errors. <laughs> I was yeah, like yeah, counting it in my head. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true because you have the original ones like she's got to have it, school yeah. days, and uh, you know, do the right thing. I think that's like one period. I think that's his like heavily independent period. That's the formative period where he's like trying to hustle and make it happen. Whereas Malcolm X, I think, is the beginning of the big films that he's doing you know what i mean where he's talking where he's talking about cinema on a larger scale than the independent you would you would put malcolm x around the time if he got game uh would i put the i think he got game was 96 96 yeah 98 yeah i guess yeah yeah i guess like yeah so it's like malcolm x started that era it was like that was malcolm x like 93 or 94 i'm trying to Malcolm X ninety two, so 92, then he kind of yeah. goes on a Crooklyn run ninety four, and then Clockers ninety five, and then like, yeah, I would say like kind of wraps up with He Got Game in, in ninety eight oh, right. or okay, Summer of okay, Sam okay. maybe. Yeah, I, I mean He Got Game, I think is it's a particularly mainstream movie. Just yeah. well, at least the attempt was uh, for that. I mean, um, obviously the three point game is excellent in uh, He Got Game because we got the incomparable Ray Allen. Yeah. Uh, was this after? This was uh, Ray Allen, I believe, was drafted in ninety six. Was that post? draft ray allen yeah i think yes. he just been like just used like the that's so crazy yeah i was like this is awesome because i was like and he like he does really well like you know for like, an athlete just... oh my god like so good he's good in it he's not like he's I, not shit he's good i actually forgot it was ray allen for like a good chunk of time like yeah. I, and i was like oh okay like and then and then someone reminded me and i was like and i think it was when he was like Boston Celtics day so like it's embarrassingly bad that I didn't even rec- recollect I feel like he's uh, I feel, uh, it's 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 I find it he was so good it's like hard to separate him from the character I see his interviews and yeah. I'm like yo man this guy this guy's gonna get <laughs> sh- just, Denzel's gonna be hugging this guy's great um, <laughs> and you know and I I think 25th hour is a really good example and summer of Sam like I I, I know what I haven't seen that movie in forever and now I totally want to revisit it it makes sense that he's the one who made that film because i mean it obviously required a new york director in order to handle the the subject matter properly and to really mm-hmm. kind of understand how its effect on the city and like the the summer of, you know son of sam killings what do we think of summer of sam like do we like it do we i, I probably haven't seen it since like 2002 so I'd, I'd have to give it a rewatch but i love john legazamo like in it and uh adrian brody they're so good they're really yeah good. yeah i've only questioned like an extremely long time. It's the one I think yeah, I've seen think... the least, to be honest with you, other than Chirac, yeah, which think... was on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I, I, I got to revisit it. I... I, I think it was like a weird error too, because it was like, that was when I was renting movies from Blockbuster if I wanted to mm. see a movie. So like if I didn't own it on DVD or 
like go to blockbuster or the library like i wasn't like able to like rewatch movies a bunch of times so like a lot of movies that kind of like got lost in that shuffle like this is for me is one of his better movies that's that's oh, for yeah. sure i think that's the only a... reason it wouldn't crack like the top three or five is just because there's a lot to choose from yeah, yeah. I, w- I would put it safely in his top 10 though 100 percent. yes i would too top 10 let's see um yeah agreed agreed yeah i'm there too on that note of agreement gentlemen i believe we gotta get going uh so coburn neil thank you so much for doing this uh i had a great time yeah thanks for having me it was great talking yeah no this is a great time thanks for having me